So good to see you. I mean, actually, so good to see people here. <laughs> Last July, I was scheduled to speak uh, for Jesse. When I came to church, there was nobody because of the COVID. That was okay, but speaking to a room full of nobody was really hard. <laughs> you know, I have so many career future career opportunities if I would resign being a preacher. However, Hollywood camera star is not something that I'm capable of doing. Speaking to just a camera was so hard. I didn't know who to look at. So throughout the whole time, I just looked down on the notes that I, I wrote. And then in, in February, Jesse asked me to preach for him, and I'm going, oh, we are going to have people, people. And I was ready, all ready, and I was fired up. Saturday morning, we have heavy snow. <laughs> it was not just a little flurries, but snow. And I'm going, oh, another empty room. What do I do? And I asked Pastor Mark Edwards if we could do some kind of an interview or talk show type preaching. And thankfully, he accepted that impromptu proposal, and we did it together. And this time in June, I've been praying, God, there will be no snow. <laughs> there will be no flood. There will be no earthquakes. There will be no volcano activities. Praise God, none of those happened. But last Sunday, Jesse delivered a powerful message, right? You know, Book of Haggai has only two chapters, and he was going to speak from chapter 1. He gave me chapter 2. In that short chapter, chapter 1, he had four points. Basically, he covered everything. <laughs> it's not a natural disaster. It's a man-made disaster now. <laughs> and I'm going, God, why do you tempt me? <laughs> Wow, so I don't know what I know. I have no idea what I'm going to speak from. You know, if you, if you fall asleep in my message, it's not my fault. It's Jesse's fault. <laughs> Jesse laid out a great background of the message. The Jews, by God's mercy, came back from the land of Babylon after, like, depending on when they were deported, 70 to 50 years of exile, and they came back to their homeland, and now they are building the temple, and finally their temple project was over. Now, this is the second temple, which replaces the first temple that was destroyed. Now the people, hundreds of them, if not thousands of them come together to the Temple Mount to celebrate the dedication of the new temple that they built. When the screens were removed and the temple, the new temple was exposed, there were some old people, some elderly people who might have seen the glory, seen the magnitude of the first temple compared to that glory and magnitude of the first temple, the second temple that they did, looked almost like nothing, very shabby. So their hearts were broken. They began to cry. That is the historical backdrop against which today's message, chapter 2 of Haggai, is being unfolded. 
God spoke to Haggai to deliver a message, to proclaim the message of God to his people, starting from chapter 2, verse 3. Who of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Be strong, you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. Back in the 1980s, when I came to America, as I read the book of Haggai, I did not really see a whole lot of reference point to the lifestyle of American people from the book of Haggai. It was not until the past 10 plus years or so that I began to see a whole lot of reference, whole lot of relevance in the book of Haggai to the 21st century postmodern United States of America and the culture therein. Now the people just came back from the exile. They have almost nothing. The country is laid in ruins and they had to build their lives there. Any common sense good people would say that people should work hard to build their lives first. However, Haggai says, no, 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 your priorities are screwed up. You got to build the temple of God first. Does that make sense? Isn't God a God of mercy? God of love, doesn't God care about people's lives and his own temple building? What kind of a God is that? How many of you like philosophy? In philosophy, we talk about the properties of the universe being consisted of uh, the universals and the Particulars. I, well, I feel like I already lost two-thirds of the congregation. <laughs> wow, why did I go there? Why did I go there? Oh, my goodness. This is what I heard about philosophy. Philosophy is boring. Philosophy is frustrating because it's so boring, you know. You know, I heard about a couple who woke up at the same time, and the wife turns to the husband and says, Honey, I had a weirdest dream. In that dream last night, you bought me a beautiful diamond necklace. I wonder what that dream means. <laughs> I don't know what the smile means, what the laughter means. But anyway... The wife says, we'll soon figure it out, sweetie. They had breakfast together. Both the wife and husband went to work. Wife came home slightly earlier, so she uh, was fixing dinner. Finally, the husband came home, and he brought something in his hand, beautifully wrapped box, and handed it to her. She is excited. She kind of knows what's in there. But she says, I wonder what it is, as if she has no clue. She unwrapped the gift, opened the box. To her sheer frustration, she found a book 
entitled The Art and Philosophy of Dream Interpretation. <laughs> That's what philosophy is all about, right? Oh, me, philosophy. Now, in philosophy, we talk about the universal and the particular. Universals never change, whereas the particulars change. It is the universal that gives identity, meaning, value, and purpose of all particulars. In this way, the universals unite diverse particulars. For instance, Morality is a universal. It is absolute. It doesn't change. Based on which we say such and such is good, such and such is evil. There are some people that say, if there is a God, assuming a good God, moral God, if there is a God, how come there is so much evil out there? Because there is so much evil out there, I know for sure there is no such a thing as a moral God, as a good God. That sounds like a brilliant idea, but if you analyze that logic, that logic has very terrible logical fallacy. That's a self-defeating statement. This is the reason. Now, if there is no God... That means there is no moral absolutes and no moral standard. If there is no moral standard, on which standard are you basing your argument when you say, if there is a God, how come there are so much evil out there? The more you deny the existence of God based on moral argument, the more you affirm that there is moral absolutes, there is moral standard out there. What is the greatest problem? What is the greatest threat that the 21st century postmodern United States of America is facing? It is not, it is not the ever-rising Chinese economy or military power. It is not the North Korean nuclear bombs and nuclear missiles that might be aiming at the United States of America. It is neither COVID-19 nor the economic recess therein. The greatest threat that the 21st century postmodern United States of America is facing is that we lost the universal or the absolutes in our worldviews, that our people have lost the identity, meaning, value, and purpose of life. What is the outcome? The deficiency of the absolutes that identify and unite us within our community has recently turned American people into a bunch of fighting tribes. We lost God. As a result, we have lost the ground to stand meaningfully and purposely as humans and as Americans.
What is coming next, which has already come? In a world where there's no universal, the particulars try to play the role of the universal. Human ethnicity is a universal. It's God-given. It is absolute, and it's unchanging. That's why discriminating against people based on the color of skin is evil. It is wrong. Leopold Sanger, a very well-known poet and a writer of Senegal, in fact, he served his country as the first president of Senegal. He wrote a poem which is very well known entitled, To My White Brother. This is his poem. Dear white brother, when I was born, I was black. When I grew up, I was black. When ill, I was black. When I die, I will be black. Whereas you, white man, when you are born, you are pink. When grown up, you are white. When in the sun, you are red. When you are cold, you are blue. When in fear, you are green. When you are ill, you are yellow. When you die, you will be gray. So who of the two of us is the colored one? Human sexuality is another absolute, another universal. It is God-given. It's unchanging. But since we demolished God from our system of thoughts, it is so sad that we say your, your gender is who you are identifying yourself with. You can be a man. You can be a woman. If you want it, you can be a it. As a result, in this country, there are 81 different genders, genders now. The state is a particular. It's not a universal. The state changes. If the state is trying to give identity, meaning, value, and purpose to its citizens, we do not call that social welfare. We call that socialistic control and manipulation. Control is not a mission of the state. When Moses encountered God in front of the burning bush, do you remember the conversation that they had? Moses asked God this question, what is your name? God said, I am that I am. What does that mean? Everything that exists on this earth has a reason for our being outside ourselves. The microphone that I'm wearing, the, micro, the microphone itself did not pop into being with its own will. Somebody else made it not the microphone itself. 
How about humans? How many of you will to be born into such and such family at such and such time before you are born? The reason for our being is found outside ourselves. But listen to what God says, I am that I am. God is the only entity whose reason for being is found within himself. He is the only infinite universal. He is the only infinite absolutes from whom the meaning, identity, value, and purpose of humanity comes. God spoke to Moses, Moses, take off your shoes. Identity. You are my servant. As an expression of your surrender, take off your shoes. Because the meaning of your life comes only in light of your relationship with me. Moses, go to Egypt and liberate, deliver my people, the purpose and value. Haggai is exactly delivering that message. Haggai is speaking, do the first thing first. Build the temple first. Shield your life. Shield your community with the sense of the absolutes. Years ago, when you lost God, what was the outcome? Your country collapsed into sin and corruption, all because you lost the absolute, all because you lost God. But by God's grace, although the nations fell and you were taken captive to Babylonia, by God's grace, I brought you back to your own land. We, I gave you the second chance to start your nation again. But if you lose your God again, you are destroying the very ground you are working so hard to build your lives on. Don't you ever make the same mistake. Now they built the temple, but the temple looked so insignificant, so shabby. They are crying, their hearts are broken. But God is speaking to the people through Haggai. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all your people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. Don't be, don't lose heart just because the size of the building is small. Don't lose heart because the current temple looks like it's deprived of its former glory. 
What counts about temple is not the size. What counted, what is important about the temple is not its, its external beauty. What is important is the worship of God that's happening inside the temple. What is important is that the transforming power is residing in that temple. As long as you build the temple and dedicate it to it and live your life centered around God in his time God will complete his mission and God's complete reign will come to Judah again therefore my people be strong be strong be strong that was Haggai's message now what is the teaching what is the relevance that's coming to us in the 21st century postmodern American Christians. Once upon a time in this country, Christianity was big. Our churches were powerful. Our life centered around Christian culture, Christian teaching. Not anymore. Christianity has not been totally snuffed out, but the remaining Christianity, remaining churches may appear to be so weak, so small. But God is speaking to us, do not lose heart. Keep building the temple. Keep being faithful to the Lord. In his time, in his time, as long as we keep Faithful, faithfully building the church of Christ in this land until God's complete rule comes to our land. We will keep obeying the Lord and we'll keep building the temple. God says, be strong, be strong, be strong. At the end of verse 4, God gives the reason why his people could be strong. God says, for I am with you. There was a very well-known French surgeon by the name of Dr. Michel. He was known for the mastery of his surgical skills, and then he was known as a heavy drinker, and when he was drunk, he had such a foul mouth. So he was popular and he was notorious at the same time. But when Billy Graham held a crusade in, in Paris in 1963, he went to the crusade and he accepted Christ right there and he became a new man and he stopped drinking and that rumor spread all over France, but people would not really believe such a transformation could take place to this man. One of his friends, another surgeon, came to him and said, Hey, buddy, I have a question for you. I heard that you ex ever since you accepted Christ, you stopped drinking. Be honest. I'm going to keep your secret, and you'll keep my secret. We are friends, and you know me, and I know you. Are you saying that you really stopped drinking? Think of this. You just had a six-hour-long surgery in that surgery room with a mess. You opened somebody's belly. Blood is gushing out, and the stench therein also. And then you pick out somebody's guts very carefully. There's pus. 
there's tumor, all kinds of problems. And you very carefully and skillfully scrape out all the pus, all the ulcers, and you cut off the tumor. And then you put those things back and you stitch it one stitch at a time. You're exhausted. We are, you're totally sweat. It took six hours of time to finish that long surgery. After it was over, as soon as you take off your surgery gown and took off your gloves and you just stumbled out of the surgery room and you barely made it back to your office and you just fell in the couch and without thinking you open the refrigerator and you find inside the refrigerator two cans of chilled beer. Are you saying you're not drinking it? Are you saying you're not drinking it? You're all by yourself in that over in that office. Nobody's seeing you. You're alone by yourself. Are you saying that you're not drinking it? Dr. Michel paused a little bit. And he said, well, buddy, I never thought of it that way. But I can tell you, I'll probably drink it. I'll probably drink it if I were in that situation. But there's one more that I want to tell you. That is this. Ever since I accepted Christ at the Billy Graham crusade, I have never been alone by myself. Jesus Christ has always been with me. Listen to the proclamation of the angels on the day that Jesus, Jesus was born. Behold, the virgin will be with child and will deliver a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God be with us. Right before Jesus ascended to heaven, he said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And the reason why we should not lose heart and be strong and keep building the kingdom of God, keep building God's church in the United States of America is this. God is with us. Haggai's message doesn't stop there. He goes on to declare about the glory, about the glorious future that will be ushered in as a result of building and dedicating that temple as small as it may appear. It's written in verses 6 through 9 in chapter, uh, chapter 2. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with the glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Most Bible scholars say that this last section is a prophecy about what is going to happen when the kingdom of the Messiah comes 
onto this earth. Now, what was the concept of the kingdom of Messiah to these people? Jesus Christ himself referred to the kingdom of the Messiah as the kingdom of God. To the Old Testament people, the kingdom of God meant an external reality. Israel was a kingdom of God. Judah was a kingdom of God. But Jesus revolutionized that idea. He totally revolutionized that theology, and Jesus internalized the concept of God's kingdom. And this is what Jesus said. The kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is inside you. It's not about geography. It's not about borders. It is about God's reign with his sovereign will. It's the kingdom of God comes where his sovereignty comes, where he rules as the king and the master. The apostle Paul goes on to say this. Don't you know that you are the temple of God and the spirit of God is dwelling in you? If that is so, we are the kingdom of God. The Jews of Haggai's time were called to build God's temple, to have God's complete, complete rule to come in their lives. Those of us that live in the 21st century postmodern United States of America are also called to build a kingdom, to build a temple, not on a space, not on a piece of land, but inside ourselves. This is my question for you. Most of us are Christians, believers. I know you are the temple of God. I know you have Christ living in you, but this is my question. Do you have Christ right at the center chamber of your heart? Do you have Christ in the very essence of your priority? Or somehow, for whatever reason, maybe because you're busy lifestyle, maybe because of COVID and all the recesses that was brought upon to us by COVID, somehow Christ has been pushed aside a little bit and he's in the margin of your life and you are at the center of your heart. If you belong to the second category, I am going to give you an opportunity to straighten out your priorities today after my message is over. I'm going to give an invitation. Be ready to respond to God's call and have your spirit totally refreshed so that right at the center chamber of your heart, right at the, in the essence of your priority, Christ will come and rule your life, reign over you, so that the kingdom of God will be built within your own self. Haggai's message applied to the 21st century United 
States of America and the Christians therein is this. Come, let us build the Church of Jesus Christ together in the United States of America. The current status of God's kingdom or God's church in America may look insignificant. In his time, however, as long as we are completely committed to God and his cause and his purpose, then in his time, God will bring a mighty, mighty glory to his temple, to this nation. His amazing power will sweep our nation in the fashion that history has never witnessed before. You know, to be honest with you, I have never seen the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land shake. I have never seen nations shake. But as an evangelist, as a disciple maker, I have seen people's lives shaken by the power of the gospel. One of those lives that I want to share with you is my dad. He was born in Korea, grew up there, and he worked when Korea was a poor, poor country. The whole society was unstable economically, military-wise, politically. Just everything was kind of in shambles. He took the test, and he passed the test, and so he became a government employee. Back then, telecommunication company, telephone companies were all, all monopolized by the Korean government. So he was hired, he was sent to work at a, a telephone company called the Korean Telecommunication Corporation. He was way down in the bottom of the corporate ladder. But FYI, he was a very strict, strong person. One day, at the request of a customer, he worked on a new telephone service installation request. And he made a nice-looking document, and it brought it to the CEO, CEO's office. When he knocked the door and opened the door, the CEO was talking on the phone. He gestured, for, he gestured for my dad to come in, leave the document on his desk, and leave, which he did. About half a day later, 10 minutes before lunch break, he went to the uh, CEO's office again to repro uh, retrieve the document with his signature on it and get to work. But that man was still talking on the phone. Maybe this time somebody else, who knows? Hopefully not the same person, half a day. <laughs> and he said, he gestured for my dad to leave. So he, he shut the door and he left. 10 minutes before he would wrap up his day's work and come home, he went to the CEO's office and knock on the door, open the door. The man was still talking on the phone, and he gestured him to leave. But I told you, my dad was a very strict, strong person. Instead of retreating, he walked into the CEO's office, 
stood right in front of the CEO across his table, his desk, reached out, picked the phone, snatched it from his face, from his cheek, and he banged the phone on the table, and he picked up the document that he worked on. He tore it apart right there, and this is what he said. You and I are both, both civil employees. Our salaries come from the tax money that people paid, and you did not work today. This phone is not for your personal conversation for all day long. You screw up your whole schedule today, and you screwed up my schedule. I did not get to do anything because you did not sign the document. And if you're not going to work, you don't need such an exquisite table. And he turned over the CEO's table. <laughs> How do you like that, huh? Two people like it. The CEO was aghast. He just didn't know what to say. So he's angry now for sure. He's saying, I am going to put you behind the bars because you tore apart the government document. My dad stooped over, picked up the document that's already torn apart, and he said, I am ashamed of you as a CEO, as the CEO of this company. Don't you even have the ability to differentiate private documents from government documents? I worked on this document myself. This is a private document. The moment the CEO reviews the contents and puts his signature on it, it's the moment when this document becomes the government document. I have all kinds of rights to tear apart my own private documents. And then he tore it apart again and threw the debris on the CEO's face. I just told you one incident of 1,000 stories. <laughs> That's my dad's lifestyle. He straightened out all of his bosses. He straightened out evil policemen in the street that stopped law-abiding drivers and threatening them for bribes. He straightened out annoying neighbors he straightened out his parents. He straightened out his dad, his wife, let alone his kids. That's why I came out so good like this. <laughs> you know? As a lad, I tried to share the gospel with him, but he would not give any attention to me. But when I became a college aide, went to Korea Baptist College, and I seriously shared the gospel with him, and finally he opened his mouth with very serious look on his face, and he said, son, you don't understand. You don't understand Korea. We are not living in such a stable country like America. We are living in Korea. This is, this is a very rough unstable country. I am not saying that Jesus was right or Buddha is wrong or vice versa. This is what I'm saying. In this rough country, if you want to become the head of the family, protect the family, provide 
for the family, if you become so weak to depend upon a supernatural being, you will never have a chance to protect the family and provide for the family because the whole country is so rough and unstable unless you are strong enough to believe in your clenched fist. You don't fit to become the head of a family. That was the end of my attempt to share the gospel with him. And I came to America to go to a Baptist seminary in Texas. And my dad, maybe he wanted to keep up with his son's status as a minister of the gospel. My dad volunteered to go to a local Baptist church in Seoul. I don't know what kind of spiritual level of commitment he had, except he read the Bible here and there from time to time. He prayed here and there maybe a minute or two. That's all that he did. I know for sure that he never had an ongoing devotional life regularly every day. This is what I heard from his pastor, though. His pastor told me, David, a few times I tried to baptize your dad, but your dad said, no, pastor, you don't know me. You don't know me. If I get to see something not right, either inside a church or outside a church, although I'm a member of a church, although I'm a Christian, you will see a monster come out of me, and, and this monster will straighten out that problem, and I will act like a man who lost his sanctification. And you don't want to see that. <laughs> and nobody wants to see that. But if... I have my son baptize me. Then not because I am spiritually strong, but because I would love to keep the promise with my son. I would try my best to keep that monster within myself and not lose sanctification and behave as a born-again Christian. It was my privilege that I baptized 25 years ago in my own church. He passed away five years ago. The last 10 days of his life, he was unconscious, so there was no conversation with him. But right before he fell unconscious, on that 10th day, or that, that starting of the 10th day, the last conversation we had as the father and the son, I will never forget. This is what he said. Son, you know my life. I was a rough man. I could not tolerate anything crooked. I had to straighten out everything. And I was such a strong person. But after I accepted Christ into my heart, I saw a whole lot of room in my mind to embrace people just as they are, to love people in spite of their shortcomings. I wish I came to Christ earlier. He said, I wish my parents led me, to, led me to Christ, led me to church when I was a child. Then I would have lived such an enriched, meaningful life. And this is what he said. 
as I led my life up to 80 years of life, I have experienced so much wind and waves that came in my way to rack my life. Although you are a minister, son, I know the same is true in your life. This is what I want to tell you as your father, as somebody who lived, lived life before you led this life. Son, whenever the winds and the waves come in your life, don't you ever fret, but stand firm in the word of God. Stand firm in the spirit of God because you are God's child. I have no doubt that my dad completed his temple construction. And when that was over, God took him into eternity. The glory that came to his later life was incompatible to the love, rough former life that he lived. God completely shook his life and made a new creation out of him. The Bible says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Let me conclude the message today. It is not only the conclusion of my message today, but it is the conclusion of the whole book of Haggai. Just as God called the Jews that he brought from their slavery in Babylon, God called his people to build a temple. And just as he called the people of God to build a temple, God is calling us, living in the 21st century postmodern America, to build the temple. In the Old Testament, the people of God built the temple on a piece of land. But according to the New Testament, we are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in us. Therefore, we are called to build ourselves. We are called to build our lives, build our homes, build our businesses, build whatever we do in line with the will of God revealed in the Bible. Now, this is the beauty of the biblical truth. There are two exodi or exoduses in the Old Testament. The first one from Egypt. The second one from Babylon. Every time the people of God was brought back to the promised land, they were requested to build the temple. Do you see what kind of God he is? He is a God of second chance. Now listen to this. The second temple was, was just a rebuild of the first temple. They built that temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. What is the Temple Mount? It's a 
piece of land that David bought. We read that story in the last chapter of 2 Samuel. David bought that piece of land from Ornan so that he could sacrifice to God for his own sins. He sinned towards the end of his life, and as a result, 70,000 innocent lives were lost because of the sin of the king. Within three days, David's heart was broken. He was totally repentant, and he bought that land to sacrifice to his God. The first temple and the second temple were both built right on that spot. Who built the first temple? It was Solomon. Who was Solomon? He was the son of Bathsheba with whom David committed the sin of adultery. Do you see the connection? God is the only being. God is the only being that can embrace and redeem the two greatest sins of one man and build his residence out of these two grievous sins and failures. And that God wants to redeem you today. Do you have Christ at the center of your heart? If not, after I finish praying with you, I'm going to ask a prayer team members to come to the front this time, and then I'm going to go down and wait for you. God is seeking you tonight, this morning, and God is, God wants to touch you and make you whole and have Christ come to the center of your life, and God wants to reign in your heart. If you make up your mind and you are saying, David, I'm willing to recommit my life to Christ. Would you pray for me? Prayer team members, would you pray for me? If that is your prayer, after my prayer is over, after our musicians all come here and we all stand and sing the last song about Christ, I'll go down there. Our prayer team members will be here. We'll be waiting for you. We'll be praying with you. Would you come? I'll pray. Let us pray now. Father, I thank you for this opportunity to listen to your word. Thank you for the story of Haggai and the revival therein when people obeyed your call and built a temple and committed it. And I am grateful that you have given us the same call to build a temple, to build ourselves in the 21st century postmodern United States of America until your kingdom finally comes to our land. Help us to commit our lives to you fresh and new today. Help us to straighten our priorities and help us to clean out our hearts and invite you right at the center chamber of our minds so that you will rule in each individual's heart. We ask this in the name of our Lord 
Jesus Christ and for his kingdom's sake. Amen. Yo, subscribe to YouTube channel. <laughs> <laughs> subscribe to this channel.